The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Myself to this room. Um, some of you may know me, some of you may not. Uh, my name is Jason Suddeth, and I'm an elder here at the church. I've actually been a member here for 11 years, except for a small three-year hiatus in the city of Charleston. And um, it's, it was very strange to come back, because when we left, I could name everyone in this room. And then now as I return, especially y'all are second service people, uh, and I'm a first service person. And so we have young kids, so first service is much better for us. Uh, so we, I don't know all the faces, so I'm learning them again. So I just want to introduce myself, since you may not all know me. Uh, I'm the campus pastor over at Hilton Head Christian Academy, just around, around the corner, and I have, about six months or so, was made an elder in the church, and man, it's just a great privilege to be here. Um, I was asked by Bill to preach today, and I think, it was already mentioned that I'm a Tar Heel. I think it may have been solely because I'm a Tar Heel. I don't know if there are any other qualifications. I think he feared putting like a Clemson Tiger up here after Saturday, um, you know, you beat Florida State, you might just hear about that game, the whole sermon. There's some worries there, but I am a Tar Heel. Um, this sermon, as I was prepping, actually took me back to a, a Tar Heel moment, I will call it. When I was just getting out of college, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, I've, I think it was 2003, he said, I have tickets to the Clemson-North Carolina game at Clemson. Do you want to go? North Carolina was going through a fairly... I think they won three games all year. It wasn't a great year. And uh, Clemson was pretty good. But I had a strong faith in my team. So I said, yeah, I'll show. I'll, I'll go to this game. And uh, we get there. And when I get in, we, I look at the tickets. And he hands, he hands me the ticket. And I'm looking where it is. I'm like, huh, where's that at the stadium? It's in the Clemson student section. <laughs> I'm like, you didn't give me a ticket. You got me a student ticket. Which he's like, oh, we'll get you in. It's okay. It's okay. And so you're in that weird moral quandary moment. So... But he paid for it, and he put a stamp, somebody put a stamp on it. And I went. So I'm there in my Tar Heel apparel. I found actually a navy blue sweater in my car, kind of like this. I was like, I better throw this on top. And so I tried to blend in to the Clemson student section. And North Carolina, it was a close game. It was going back and forth. North Carolina scored. I'd go like, all right. And then I like put my hand down quietly. And then fourth down, balls, I think about the five-yard line. Darian Durant was a North Carolina quarterback at the time. He breaks kind of gets out of the pocket, and he dives into the end zone to tie the game with three, four seconds left in the game. And at that point, I can't contain it anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is, the game is tied. We're going to head to overtime. I just start jumping up and down. Like, I'm on, the guy who brought me, I'm like, like riding his shoulders a little bit and like rubbing his head. And then, of course, now there's no more hiding. You know what I mean? Like, I have clearly identified myself as the problem in the student section. And then I noticed everyone around me starts cheering. Like, they're now going crazy. And I guess maybe for a moment, my brain said, maybe they've joined into my joy. Maybe they've just said, look, this guy, he deserves it. Let's get, let's get, you know, it was not that. All right. So Darian Durant, as he's crossing the goal line, somebody punches the ball out. From my angle, I have no way to see this. No way to see this. A Clemson player dives on it in the end zone. The game is over. Say what was said to me or talk about what was thrown at me, it, all of a sudden now I am standing out in this sea of orange, and I am the lone Tar Heel in the midst of it, and there's nowhere to hide. What we're going to talk about today, sola fide, 
is sort of like that moment. We're going to say this incredible thing. How does someone get to heaven? Not of any good work they'll ever do in their entire life, but solely and only of faith alone. Every other world religion that surrounds us looks at that and goes, are you serious? Wait, you don't have to do anything. It's not of what you do. It's of what you believe. That sounds ridiculous to So what makes us stand out? Like in a world full of these religions, what is it? And we've been going through these solas, and it's been, we say that this alone is the word of God. That is a massive accusation against every other religion. That makes us stand out. We said you're saved solely off of grace. It is not by your works, it's by grace. And then we say this is what really gets people. Well, how am I saved? How am I saved? That's the one we're going to come to today. You're not saved off anything you will ever do, only off what you believe. That is scandalous to the religious world. You are standing, jumping on a bleacher, surrounding by a religious world that goes, wait, you mean all I have to do is believe? There's not a list? They, it will always make us stand out. So two things we've got to do. Is this biblical? Did Jesus teach it? And if he did, we got to answer these kind of three things off of it, okay? So here's going to be point one today. We're going to keep it simple since I'm just a a fill-in guy today. Here's number one. It's going to be really deep. See if you can hold on to this. Faith alone, sola fide, is important. Yes, I know. It's very deep. Just stay with me. Uh, Faith alone is important. Second thing, faith alone, sola fide, is controversial, Okay? It's going to be, was controversial, will continue to be controversial. And the final thing we're going to address, if we're going to say someone is saved solely off what they believe, here's the last thing we have to answer. Here's the third thing. We have to answer the question, what is biblical faith? Okay? So to do that, we're going to go to Galatians 2 today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. We're in Galatians 2. I'm going to read 1 through 10 at the start, and then I'll probably hit about 11 through 16 following that. So this is Galatians 2, verse 1. This is Paul writing about one of his experiences. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. So he set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised." Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
So we come to our first point here, which faith alone is important. And we kind of get this. It's, it's a kind of strange little thing here. Let me put a couple of pieces together for you. We think Paul here is talking about an event that happened in Acts 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. It was this time where the church got together and they said, what did Jesus teach about salvation? That was the central question. What did Jesus say it actually took to become a Christian, to become a follower of Christ? And it was an important question because the people asking it and the audience they were selling to were vastly different. So you have Paul who's out there in the Gentile world with people who've never heard a lot of them of the Old Testament. And you have the early church, especially in Jerusalem, that these are made up of people that have been Jewish their entire life and have followed the Jewish law their entire life. And they've put their faith in Christ. And now they're asking the question, do I have to keep following the law? How about the sacrifices? How about, what what about this? Is there anything else I have to avoid? They're asking the question, what does it take to be saved? And Paul walks into this situation And he's been ministering for 14 years. And here's what he's been preaching. Sola fide, faith alone. He says, I've always been preaching that you're saved not off what you do, not off following the law. I've been going to the Gentiles, these people that had never followed a Jewish law, and told them it is by faith alone in Christ that you're saved. And Paul actually, if you look in verse, what was that, verse 2? He says, I went in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. He said, I had to make sure. I had to go to the people who were with Jesus constantly during his ministry and say, hey, am I running in vain? Am I doing the right thing? I'm seeing God work, but am I doing the right thing? You were with Jesus all the time. He's given me the revelation, but I know you were with him. Let's talk about it. So that's the conversation they have in Acts 15. And he says, down, if you go all the way down to verse 9, there's a very important moment in here. So they've had the conversation, they've gone back and forth, they've seen what Paul had said, they see what they, like, they, they bring his ministry in, and he, he talks about Barnabas, and he talks about this guy Titus who's with him that they talked about up there, who's a Gentile, and they, this is what he says, and when James, that was Jesus's earthly, that was his brother, um, through his, well, I guess half-brother, semi, that was James and Cephas, Cephas is just another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars of the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me and added nothing. When they heard what Paul was teaching, they gave that right hand of fellowship and said, that's the gospel. That's the truth of God. That's what we heard Jesus teach. We were with, I was with him all the time. I think James was Jesus' brother. He saw, can you imagine that Jesus is your brother? be so great. And can you imagine the point? Like, well, if you were like your brother. Um, but he, he was with Jesus for years, more so than anyone else. And then you have Peter and John who were with Jesus and were part of two of the three apostles who were with Jesus constantly and saw more than everybody else saw. And he goes, hey, am I teaching what Jesus was teaching? Am I teaching the right thing? But let's make sure we're on. And they give them that right hand of fellowship. I say, that's the gospel. So as we walk into what we're going to talk to you today, understand if you're in this room and you're just sort of investigating Christianity or been out for a while or have been burnt someplace, understand this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved not off what we do. We are saved off what we believe. We look to Jesus Christ who came, lived a perfect life, died, rose again so that we can look in faith to him who took our place and died for our sin. And when we believe that he did that, when we put our faith that he did that, his righteousness, his good acts are given to us. 
This should blend right, if you happen to be here last week, this should blend right into this grace. It's by grace and through faith. This is the gospel Paul was teaching, and he had to check to make sure it was right. So, but this isn't the only spot in the Bible it is. Let me just fly through a few more for you. Bill last week preached on Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. There aren't works that you, it's not you're saved through faith. And then at that point, that gets you almost there, and then you add some more. No, there's no works. This is Acts 16, 31. Very, very simple verse. He who believes, I'm sorry, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Do you hear the simplicity of that statement? Believe. It's not believe and. It's believe. This is a theological thing that people, that's all it takes? I believe? So that's Acts. Let's go to John. We said John was involved in this process. Let's look at John. You know one very famous verse on this where John talks about belief, correct? You've probably heard it a million times. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes, what do they get? Eternal life, right? We know that verse. We've heard it. We, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got that. And for some of you, you, that you hear that so many times, and this whole doctrine to you, this whole doctrine may feel like John 3.16 to you. But, oh, yeah, yeah. I, just, I believe in Jesus, and then I am saved. Thanks, Jesus. And it's not that you're intentionally callous towards it. The same way we're not intentionally callous to this amazing verse in Scripture. It's that we've become so accustomed to it sometimes can you imagine hearing that for the first time? Do some of you remember hearing that for the first time? If you were raised in any environment where you were sort of thought, well, there's got to be a list and there's got to be a checklist and there's got to be, I've got to get it all right. I've got, I've got to live in this universal scale of am I good enough for God or am I not good enough for God? And the first time you heard the words, no, 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 no. It's by grace through faith. And your heart went like this. Oh, whew. You know, like the instinctive response. And so we hear John 3, 16. Listen, if you believe, here's what I have. Nicodemus didn't quite get it. John 3, 36, he says this. Same conversation 20 verses later. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's it. No caveat, no add-on. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And just to finish it off, to make sure we get all these apostles in there, Peter said this in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith. What's the goal of your faith? He's about to tell you. Here it is. The salvation of your soul. Hear this simple gospel. We are saved by believing in the sacrifice and the resurrection, and the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's a, that's the reward of our faith, salvation of our soul. Do you know there's only two books in the entire New Testament that don't include the word faith? That's 2nd and 3rd John. It's everywhere. It's not, just Old Test, or it's not just New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. You can go back to the very beginning. You go back to Abraham. How did, well, didn't Abraham, of course, have to follow all the rules? And remember, they got the laws and the rules. Didn't he have to follow all those to be right with God? You go to Genesis 15, 6. Very important passage. It's one of those, if you don't know as a believer, this is a passage just to have up here in your reference somewhere. Genesis 15, 6. God is making Abraham this covenant of, I'm going to do amazing things. Your descendants are going to be 
like the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, the Savior's going to come through your line. And there's this awesome little verse in the middle of it that should revolutionize how religion looked at access to God. And it says this. This is amazing. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. You hear that? He believed God, and God counted it, depending on your translation, as if he were righteous. God imputed his righteousness onto Abraham off of his faith. Not off of his willingness to follow, but his faith that would eventually make him follow. That's your gospel. This is wildly important. This is wildly important. In fact, it's so important and so controversial that it caused a giant spat in the early church. And I just, I take you to this next thing. So if you have a Bible, look with me to verse 11. Um, I'll carefully say this again. I said it in the first service. Uh, This next is a massive confrontation between Peter and Paul in the early church. I called them uh, Mothman and Godzilla, which may have been right or wrong. I'm not quite sure. No one yelled at me in between services, so I must have gotten away with it. Um, But you ever see those old movies? I, I don't know if anyone's ever actually seen them or if they exist or if they're a myth. You know the things where you've got like Mothman and Godzilla fighting each other and the city's burning down? Um, That's what I think of when I see these next verses we're going to look at. You're going to have Peter and Paul, two giants of the early church, had this heated confrontation that was so big that it made Scripture, and it's all because sola fide is so important that it caused Peter to confront him. Look at at these couple of verses. This is verse 11. But when Cephas, again, that's Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Okay. One of the apostles followed Jesus around, one of the three. You opposed him to his face, and he stood condemned. All right, That's a strong opening little sentence. You've got to wonder, if you've never heard this passage, there's at least probably two or three in the room like, what in the world happened to make this happen? You have Paul to his face saying, you're condemning him for what he's saying. Go to verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, what they came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, and listen to this part very carefully, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And here's this last phrase. Because by the works of the law, no one can be justified. I've been in education now for this is 12, 11 years in education. And lunchrooms are scary places for certain kids. Where you sit, who you're sitting with, those sort of things. A lot of confrontations happen over these sort of things. This is a little bigger than like, oh, he's not eating with me. Here's what's basically happening. This group of people come in and they believe to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and follow the Jewish law. They're called the circumcision party. They wanted the people who were being saved, if they weren't Jewish, to sort of convert to Judaism and Jesus. They want them to follow the law 
and believe in Jesus. And they show up. And there must have been a powerful force because Peter, who had been spending time discipling and eating and sharing the Lord's Supper with these Gentiles and had given them full acceptance in and was pouring into their lives, all of a sudden, these people, Peter was nervous enough about them or didn't want to offend them, and he starts backing away from them. And Paul steps into the middle of the scenario and opposes him to his face. This is a loud, public, definitely public, probably loud, I'll say, moment where Paul steps in and goes, what are you doing? And it's not that Paul is so concerned that these people are like, ah, oh, Peter doesn't want to eat with me and I have feelings and need. That's not the moment here. It's much, much bigger than that. Here's the moment. Peter, you're questioning the gospel. You're changing it. Don't you know? Look at verse, um, look to verse 10 here. I'm sorry, verse 16. Yet that we know that a person is not justified by the works of law, but through faith in Jesus. Peter, you're changing the gospel. Paul thought it was so important that he would stand up to Peter, the rock of the church, and say, Peter, you're messing up the gospel. And so as you look at this doctrine of salvation by faith, understand it how essential it is to who we are. It is the gospel. But understand the second piece with it. It will always be controversial. Well, all these men who were preaching this other gospel, they're not trying to damage the church. They just look at what Jesus did and they think, yes, of course I needed Jesus to die. Yeah, I get it. I needed Jesus to die. But don't I need to keep, now that he died for me, can't I now follow the law so much better? I've got the spirit. Can't I follow the law so much better? You know, essentially what they turned Jesus into is steroids. Anyone, anyone get caught up in the whole baseball home run thing of the late 90s? Remember that? Remember Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and how they went from looking like normal human beings to just like giant muscles with little teeny heads, you know, and attached to it. And they're hitting all these home runs and they're doing all this. And everyone, I remember being, uh, I think I was in, I think I was in high school at the time, high school or college. And I remember being amazed at these guys, how ripped they were. They're hitting these massive home runs. And that's what these guys basically turned Jesus into. It's a steroid. At the end of the day, they're stepping up to the plate and they're hitting the law out of the park. But they couldn't, they would tell you, I can never do it on their own. My faith in Christ, the steroid of Jesus' death, enables me to live how I should live. Do we know how offensive that is to the gospel and to the death of Christ? See, here's what we all naturally want to do. You want to do it, I want to do it. I'm going to tell you right now, it's in you. We want a piece of the glory. And if somehow something you do helps get you to heaven, you take a piece of that glory with you. When we add anything to the gospel, we are glory stealing from the Lord. And they wanted in. And we still do the same today. That's why faith alone means so much, because it takes all credit from you and me. That's why it's so controversial, because it's no longer us doing it. We're not in control. We want that glory. We want that control. And the glory is outside of ourselves. So it's always going to be controversial. And it's also controversial because it brings fears. And I'm going to just very quickly give you two fears that it tends to bring. This is the one when... Uh, Luther started producing his documents and talking back and forth at the Catholic Church. 
This is a, they, one of the reasons they proclaimed an anathema on him, a, a cursing of his, what he was teaching, that you're saved by faith alone, was this fear. Here was the big fear that comes with this doctrine. Yeah, but if I'm only saved, and actually what's great about this is I had a senior in high school look at me and ask me the same question the other day. So 500 years later, the same fear is kind of out there. But if we're only saved off what we believe, why then wouldn't I just live however in the world I want to live and just believe it? Jesus died for me. He suffered for me. He paid for my sins. Why wouldn't I just believe it and move on? Well, I'll tell you the answer I gave them because it was pretty simple. If you really believed that the God of the universe who knew everything about you looked into your heart and saw brokenness and sin and depravity, and he so wanted relationship with you that he sent his very only son, in essence himself, into earth, who lived a perfect life, lived sinlessly, and was murdered without any justification by earthly reasons, and went to the cross and took on the full wrath of God, and took every ounce of judgment you ever did, and every sin you've ever committed or will commit, he took all of that, and then died rose again victorious and called you into relationship with you to live a new life. If you believe that this much, could you ever say, all right, cool, thanks. Hey, you died for me, now I'll go do what I want. Of course you couldn't. If you believe that in your heart, and it's not that we don't forget it, it's not we don't move away from it at moments and live, go our own direction, but if you believe that at your core, at any level, small, large amount, it's going to cause something in your heart to say, i got to follow this. I gotta, I, he's got to have everything. And I, I compared it to, to them to, um, to my wife. And in this room, it looked differently then. It was pointed that way, and the carpet wasn't as nice, and the Stage is like way cooler. Uh, man, our wedding pictures would have looked better in here. Um, but I got married in this room, and my wife stood across from me, and she said she was going to love me in sickness and health, in good and bad, and all of these sort of things. And look at me, I believed her. What kind of husband would then go, oh, she's, she's in? No matter what I do, she's going to love me? Great, I'll go do what I want. And ignore her and go my own direction? No. That's not how relationship works. That's not how the gospel works. When we believe the gospel, when we come into some level of belief that Christ died for my sins, it does something to you. It pulls you into relationship. And the last thing it does, or the last fear, and I get this a lot, is this. Well, you don't know me. How could just, if you knew everything I had ever done, if you knew my story, God would not forgive me. Somehow the death of Christ and just believing, I've got to make it up to him somehow. There's got to be some way that I can step back and make it up and get right with, I've got to be able to make it up somehow. And they think, honestly, when people tell me that, they very much feel like they're being humble in that request. And some of you may feel that way, and I I don't in any way mock that feeling, but I'm telling you guys, that's not humility. That's misjudging the death of Christ, because here's what you're really saying. What Jesus went through on the cross was not sufficient. He, he couldn't have taken my wrath. You're not questioning your character. You're questioning Christ's work. You're underestimating this amazing moment where he took on all of our sin. And that is... 
It's questioning the nature of God. And honestly, it's a lie from the pit. If you're in this room and you feel that way, there is no sin you could have ever committed that the cross is not sufficient to deliver you from. So as you hear these controversies and these reasons, like why people are scared of this doctrine, let's run away from the fear and let's answer one last primary question. What then is biblical faith? If you're telling me I've got to believe in him to get to heaven, what in the world does that actually look like? So here's our last question. Here's where we're going to end is what is biblical faith? Um, It basically has three elements by most people who write about this. And here's the three elements that they put it in. There's an intellectual element. There's an emotional element. And there's an element of the will. Okay? There's an intellectual, an emotional, and an element of the will. So the intellectual will... It's funny to not be able to say the word intellectual, kind of, anyway. All right, um, the intellectual element is this. You hear the gospel, you understand the gospel, and you can process what that means. You, it's, it's part of the believing thing. It's, it's one of the reasons Paul said, how can they believe if they don't hear? How will they know if they don't hear? And it's, we need to be able to hear the gospel, process it, and then say, all right, I understand I'm a sinner. I understand I need something for my sin. I understand that Jesus died. This is where you would answer a lot of your questions about, well, how do we know he died? How do we know he really wrote? This is that area where you have to wrestle with a lot of these things because before you're willing to fully buy in and believe with all of your heart, you've got to be, there's got to be an intellectual willingness to commit. Doesn't mean every question has to be answered. But they have to be answered, how the writers call it, sufficiently, not comprehensively. You may still have questions and sit in this room and say, I've got a lot of questions about faith, but I know I believe it. But there's an intellectual element. The second piece was this. There's an emotional element. The intellectual and the emotional are very tied together. It's when it goes from just believing like, okay, I get it, Jesus died, to in some ways that come down and wraps into your soul. Say, I believe it so much that I feel, I can feel my sin. I can feel the love from being, someone died for me. And then finally, I can, through my will, through the power of this, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through my will, I can surrender my soul. I can say, I so believe it that I am willing to surrender my sinful soul to a merciful God. And if you notice that what this faith is, is basically what we're saying, it's all of you. This isn't just some emotional feeling at a camp. It's not some intellectual assent to a doctrine. This is every ounce of you says, I believe this is true. I believe this is the gospel. And then it starts to take effect into your life. It may be at certain levels and maybe different levels of passion, but it's taking effect into your life. It reminds me of this... um, there's a woman who is a, was, I, I guess I still am a Facebook friend. I definitely blocked her post because I got annoyed by it. Um, she started taking this supplement, and she sells this supplement. She's in one of these groups that sells supplements. And she used to be a runner. Then her knees went bad and her hips went bad. And she started taking this supplement. And then she started not just using it. She started feeling the effects of it, feeling better. And then she went to Facebook with it. And literally, like, at least four posts a day about whatever the name of the supplement was and how great it was. And you can get on board and you can feel this good every day. And I thought about her process of getting there from 
person who tried something, all the way to person who I blocked on Facebook because I was tired of hearing about her supplement. And the steps are, someone told her about it, right? And she considered it, and her knees do feel bad. And she thought, I, you know, I could probably, what if I just tried it out? And then she tried it and thought about it, and she did feel better. And then the more she felt about it, she just, it involved like, yeah, I, I feel better. And she started to really like the supplement and be involved in the supplement. And then eventually she gets to the point where she goes all in on this supplement to the point where, like I said, like she's a Facebook supplement selling machine where she's just, it's everything to her. And it's here to hear to her will is that you and I should know how great this supplement is. And that's, that's sort of what the gospel does. We hear it. We believe it. And our belief in it is in such a way that it's, slowly and progressively starts to take over our lives. And I say that to a room that I say very carefully here at the end because some of you hear that and instead of hearing joy in that, your heart feels this condemnation. That's not what my faith is like. Maybe I felt that I don't feel a faith that is growing and thriving. And to you, I bring one last point today, which I hope gives you some mercy and some grace in the heart of this, which is this. The object of your faith is so much more important than the strength of your faith. Um, anyone in here grow up going to church, like youth ministry days in the 80s or the 90s? Anyone kind of in that window, like going to church? All right, here's one of the things I've determined out of that time period. Youth pastors only had like six examples total at that point, right? Like it was the same six examples, and you'd go to a church, and the youth pastor would be there, and it was like, oh, I know this one. I've heard this one before. And one of my favorites, and it's a great one, I'm only kind of mocking it, was the chair example. Anyone here, just raise your hand. Do you know I'm talk- where I'm going with the chair example? See, a l- I see that hand. I see that hand. All right. Uh, so there's the chair. The youth pastor would put the chair on the stage. You go, aha, I know where this one's going today. I got this one. And he'd get up there and he'd go through it. And it's, it's a great visual example. So like I said, it's only a minor mockery here. Um, and he, the end, end goal of it was he would get to the chair and he'd ask the question, how do I show that I have faith in the chair? And what were you supposed to respond? You sit in the chair. And then he'd sit in the chair and say, that's faith in Jesus. And it's great. He's right. That's salvation, all these sort of things. But as I thought about that through the years, the example, we get it wrong in one regard. We leave out the most important part. You know what the most important part of that example is? It's the chair. If I fly in with faith and jump in full-hearted and the chair stinks... I'm falling on the floor. If I go over there, if the chair is made of billion-pound stone, and I ease into the chair as slowly as possible, and I'm scared, like one of those cheap outdoor chairs, you know what I mean? You sit down. What matters is the chair. Our chair is Christ. God in flesh, who came and died for our sins. Our chair is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if you walk in here and your faith is very fragile this morning, and I don't know what's going on in your world, whether it's disease or financial or marital or just life, and your faith feels very weak today, and you're asking really hard questions of God, like, why did you let this happen to me? Or what's going on, God? I thought you had a plan in my life. Wherever your faith is in this moment, that chair is not changing. That is God in flesh. And if your faith is fragile this morning, the chair is not fragile. 
If you walk in here of a week of victory where you've seen God work in you and through you, that chair is not fragile. The chair never changes. And so if you come in here today and you have legitimate, hard questions about our faith, because they're out there, we're not scared. You're not going to break the chair. So I just encourage you in this. Mark 9, 24. uh, You've heard this story before. Father comes to Jesus, and he wants his son to be healed. And he says, Jesus, if there's anything you can do, heal my son. And Jesus goes, if? And the man says this verse that is stuck in my heart forever. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Some of you are right there today. And I encourage you, this is a place to ask those questions. If you've got hard questions, that's why we've got pastors, that's why we've got elders, that's why we've got deacons, that's why we've got teachers and Bible study leaders. Ask your questions. And if you're in this place, and maybe you don't have hard questions, but you just feel like your faith is like, eh, it's just there, you know it's there, but it's like, I don't, yeah, I mean, I trust the chair, I'll sit in the chair. It, what do you do? I have four suggestions for you. One, open up this book. Spend some time in prayer. If salvation is not by faith, or if it's not by works, if it's by faith, why do we tell you to read this thing? It grows faith. We expose ourselves to truth. Faith grows in us. Here's something else you can do. Surround yourself with godly people. Why do we tell you to spend time among believers in small groups? Because when I see God working in Robert and Robert sees God working in me, I go, man, God is good and my faith grows and his faith grows and we grow it together. And that's why we spend time among believers. What else? We go out and we serve. We go to Florida and we get on a roof where we have no clue what we're doing and we see God do good things through us and go, wow, God is good even in my weakness. And we struggle And the next time struggle or pain comes into your life, instead of running or looking for the ant, like doing what I do, how can I fix this as fast as possible? Embrace the work of a good God and say, where am I going to learn? Where am I going to see your goodness in the middle of all of this? So I know we're in a lot of different places when it comes to the level of our faith, but I can encourage you in one thing, the chair is never changing. And if you in this room today feel weak and broken in a minute, sing to the God out of a broken heart of a weak faith, say, God, help, I trust you, I trust you. If you're in this room and your faith is, "Eh," go to him and beg him before we sing this song, Lord, grow my faith. And no matter who you are in this room, if you've put your faith in Christ, as the team comes up here and as they're going to sing, how do we respond? We sink. We sink because the chair's not breaking anytime soon and will never break because it's made of something stronger than any granite or rock that we could find. So we're going to sing to the Lord and we're going to dive in together. Let's pray.